All right, it's a rhetorical question, which means I don't want to hear your answer. Especially if you've heard me ask it before, then you'll throw out my answer and you'll ruin the whole story. But for those of you who are new, aha, this is for you. You're on a deserted island. You can only have one book. Think about it for a minute. Which book would you want? How many of you are thinking about the Bible? Let me see your hands. That's what I figured. You're easy to guess. Not me. Wouldn't be the Bible. Steve, you're a pastor. Yes, I am, but I'm no idiot. I want How to Survive and Escape the Deserted Island. That's the book I want. <laughs> then I'll go home and read my Bible. <laughs> sometimes it's not the easy answer. That's the right answer. And sometimes it is. There are three words that'll get you into heaven. I don't mean St. Peter's going to stand at the gate with a secret decoder ring and say, tell me the three words and I'll let you in. No, there's three words. And I don't mean you got to know the words like, you know, a bird can say the words. I mean, you got to know these words. If you know these words, you will get into heaven. If you don't know these words, you will not get into heaven. So the good news is, if you're listening to me this morning, you can know these words. So I'm going to impregnate these words into your soul with the hope that they will be yours. I base these three words on the gospel itself. Gospel, by the way, uh, is not a word we use. It's based on Greek, and it just means good news. So why do we call it the gospel? Why don't we just call it the good news? I don't know. We seem to do that. We take Greek words, and then we keep them, and then we don't know what they mean. So, we've got in the Bible the four Gospels, the four good newses, the four biographies, which are good news about Jesus. So, the basic Gospel message is summed up in just a few words. In fact, in half a verse. I'm in Acts chapter 20, verse 21. Here's the verse. It says, Testifying to Jews, and also to Greeks, repentance towards God, and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. Eighty-five times that phrase is used in the New Testament. Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Lord is used a million more times. Jesus is used a million more times. Christ is used. But those three together, Lord Jesus Christ, occur 85 times in the New Testament. I would call that extremely significant. But if you think about it, we can tell somebody what it means, but we're using three words. Lord Jesus Christ that we don't use in normal conversation in America. When you go to work, you work for your boss, not your Lord. We don't have Lords in this country. In England, they still use the word. They got the House of Commons and the House of Lords. But in this culture, that's a foreign word to us. Only religious people use it, and only to refer to God. So if you're out on the street and you tell somebody you need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're almost saying you need to blah, 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 blah. Because there's three words they don't know. And that's unfortunate. But it does give us an opportunity to explain the words or to use different words so that they can hear us. So I went to dictionary.com. What word do we use instead of Lord in our regular culture? Listen, here's the definition of Lord. A person who has authority, control, or power over others. A master. A chief or a ruler. 
master. That's probably the closest word we can come to to Lord in our culture. But we don't use master either. We're a messed up society. Anything that has to do with authority, we don't want to have anything to do with it. Master went out with slavery. It's got a bad taste in my mouth. I understand that. But we need a word. Boss just doesn't cover it. Leader, eh. Master's got to be the one. People at least know what it means. Interesting, huh? You never thought of it that way. But it's true. We have a problem. It's a communication problem. The Bible's full of the word Lord, and we don't even know what it means. And we don't use it in our culture. It was common in other cultures. Even in Mexico, they used the word. Señor. Oh, I thought that meant sir. It, well, yeah, when we use it in respectful to a person, but it's Señor Jesus Christ, too, in Spanish. So it really is more than just sir. It's up a step. But in this culture, not, nada. <laughs> we don't use it. Lord means master. That's the one I'm going to have to go with. The Bible says this, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So let me ask you a question. If you don't follow Jesus, if he's not your master, is he still the Lord? Yes, he is. Whether you follow him or not, that's still who and what he is. But let me change the question just a little. If you don't follow him, and he's not your master, is he still your Lord? Not really. He should be. He could be. But you don't want him to be. Because here's what the verse says. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Which means if you don't confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you won't be saved. What I'm trying to say is, Unless he's your Lord, he can't be your Savior. He can't be your Savior without being your Lord. And he can't be your Lord without being your Savior. You can't have half of him. I believe Jesus died for my sins, but yeah, I'm not calling him Master. Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And believe, and you will be saved. Jesus said this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. See, it's not enough that you know the word. You've got to live the word. It's got to be your word. He's got to be your Lord. It's not enough to say, Lord, as if it was his title on his desk at the office. He's got to be your Lord. He says, oh, there's all sorts of people that call me Lord. They don't count. Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only who does, the one who follows, the one who really makes me my Lord. And this is what I'm getting at. He's the Lord for everybody, but then again, he's not, unless you actually submit to him and make him your Lord. So Lord equals master. To be our Savior, he must also be our Lord. Three words. The first is Lord. And I told you we don't use it in this culture, and so it's confusing to people. Somebody you follow, somebody who has authority over your life. Second word, Jesus. Don't use that in this culture either, except for in religious circles. Americans don't name their children Jesus. Mexicans name their children Jesus. I know some Jesuses. I know a couple. But Americans, we don't do that. There's only one Jesus. You're like, yeah. Well, no. 
That's not really what God intended. Let me explain to you what I mean. Jesus isn't even English. It's kind of like a Greek-Latin thing. The English for Jesus, if I was translating from the Hebrew into English, I would not translate his name Jesus. I would put it the actual name Joshua. That is the translation of the Hebrew and the Greek word. Not Jesus. Jesus comes from another language. It was right in their language. They brought it into this culture and stuck with it. And yet we have in our culture all sorts of Joshua's. There's an Andrew Joshua right there. We use Joshua all the time, but we don't know it really is the exact same word as Jesus. There's no J sound in the Hebrew language. So if you take out the J sound from the word Yeshua or Yehoshua, take out the Ya from Hebrew, put in the J, you get Joshua. That's where it comes from. It should be Yeshua, Yehoshua. But in English, we don't say Ya, we say Ja, so we got Joshua. It's the exact same thing. And that's how Yeshua turns into Joshua. It's just the English way of saying it, which is kind of weird to me. You go to another culture and you say, what's your name? And they say, <laughs> is it all right if I just call you Bo? Because <laughs> I can't say what you just said. But if you go to another culture and they say, what's your name? They say, Phil. Why would you call him something else? You can say Phil. Why don't we call him Yeshua? Who can't say that? It's not like some really, you know, Melchizedek. Even that's easy to say. Or Melchizedek. Okay, now, now I understand why. But Joshua, Yeshua, that's, that's, a, that's a, Why did we stick with Jesus? I don't know. I don't know. Jesus and Joshua are the exact same word. They just come from different languages. In the Bible, they're used interchangeably. Let me read you a passage of scripture from a modern translation. Then I'll read the exact same passage from the King James and watch what happens. Our forefathers had the tabernacle of the testimony with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. Having received the tabernacle, our fathers under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David. All right, exact same passage now in the King James. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he had appointed speaking unto Moses that he should make it according to the fashion that he had seen, which also our fathers that came after brought in with Jesus into the possession of the Gentiles whom God drave out before the face of our fathers unto the days of David. So when the King James translators translated and they came across the word Joshua, they consistently put it into Jesus in the New Testament because that's what it was. So when I'm telling you the exact same words, I'm not making this up and giving you some minority opinion that everybody wouldn't agree with. I'm giving you straight up translation from Hebrew to English and from Greek to English. It's Jesus, Joshua, same thing, exact same thing. So in our culture, we don't use the word Lord except for in religious circles. And so when we're talking to non-religious people, we're not communicating as clearly as we could be. We don't use the word Jesus. We use, oh, that's the religious guy. Well, that's true. But God gave him a name that was common, and we've made it uncommon. That's what I'm trying to say. There's a reason God gave him a common name. 
He didn't give him some bizarre name that nobody else had. By the way, his name means something. Um, it's two Hebrew words pushed together. Yah, from like Yahweh, and Shua, salvation. Yahweh is salvation. God saves. That's what Joshua means, or Yeshua, or Yehoshua means. It means God's our Savior. His name means something, and it's a common name. When the angel came to Joseph, this is what he said. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Joshua, because he will save his people from their sins. But you're not going to find a translation out there that's going to say Joshua. But that's exactly what he said. Yeshua. So it, it doesn't bother me that we call him Jesus. I'm used to it just like y'all are. But when I think about it, it's kind of messed up. Because God wanted him to have a name like one of the guys. There's a reason God did that. And we have changed, it seems, God's intent by giving him his own name. Hey, if God wanted to have him to have his unique own name, he would have given him his unique own name. He specifically gave him a human name. Guess what? Made him a human. He's supposed to be like us. You know, he's called our brother in one place in the Bible. God made him a normal human being so that he could associate, so that he could relate, and so that we could relate to him. So we could just go to him and say, Lord, I'm in need today. One of the guys. Steve, that's disrespectful. It's not disrespectful. He hung out with the guys. He played with the guys. He laughed with the guys. He ate with the guys. He taught the guys. And he said, when you pray, pray like this. He was one of the guys. I guess what I'm trying to say is he was human and he was approachable. But we're making him non-approachable and just more than human, which he also was. He was both, though. So why did he become a human? Why did God do that? Well, God as a spirit can't die. God as a human can. He was born so that he could die. That can't be really said about any other human being. None of us are born so that we can die. We're going to die, but that's a, that's a mistake. We are supposed to be able to live forever. But because of sin, now we have to die. In fact, death is called God's enemy in the Bible. But this one was born, so he could die. Now, remember earlier I was talking to you about the word master? And I said it kind of rubs us the wrong way. We Americans, we don't want any masters. Jesus is the master. He's God in human flesh, but he became a servant. And not just the father's servant, your servant. Listen to what the Bible says. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's not telling us to do anything he hasn't done himself. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, that means you've got to have a master. He even made himself a servant. And now it's our turn to be a servant. Goes around, comes around. He led the way by example. So three words that we need to know. Lord is the first. Jesus is the second. And Christ is the third. I know you know better, but most people out there don't know better. His name is Mr. Jesus Christ. Last name is Christ. So if you want to be respectful, you call him Mr. Christ. 
they really think that's his last name. But it's not. It's not part of his name at all. It's more of a title than anything. Now, Christ is another word that we have a good English word for, but we don't use it. So again, Jesus has this title, and nobody knows what it means. They don't even know it's a title. They think it's a name. You take it from a name, turn it to a title. What's it mean? They don't know that either. We've made him so unapproachable. The whole point of the incarnation was to make him approachable. And we keep messing it up. We could mess up a good train wreck. I'm telling you, why do we do these things? Christ, what does that mean? Christos comes from the Greek. So we took the Greek and put it into English, just like we did with Jesus. Christos is the exact same word as Mashiach. Mashiach in English is Messiah. Christos, Christ. Well, what's Messiah mean? We don't know that either. It means someone who's anointed. Great. What's that mean? We don't use that one either. Smeared with oil. That's what it means. Joshua, the guy smeared with oil. It's no wonder they stuck with Christ. That ain't special at all. But that's what it means. Now, Back in the day, lots of people were smeared with oil. But he was the oil-smeared one. In our culture, smearing somebody with oil doesn't even make any sense. That's true, it doesn't. So let me explain to you about the smearing of oil, which was a big thing back in the days of Jesus and before. The word, I'm going to tell you seven things about anointing from the Bible. Seven things. First of all, a person who was anointed, smeared with oil, was a person who was consecrated by or to God. Consecrated means um, set apart to, um, dedicated to. This person is dedicated by and for God. So when somebody was anointed in the Old Testament, it was a symbolic way of kind of initiating them into God's service. That would be one way of looking at it. Or saying, this person is extra special. That's what anointing did. So when there was a new king, he would be anointed. You might become the new president of the Fisherman's Guild. No anointing. New king, you get anointed. So the first thing you need to know about anointing is it simply means to be set apart as sacred or dedicated. You're set apart to serve. That would bring us to the second one. Uh, an anointed person actually had a task. They weren't just like kissed on each cheek, anointed, and then sent home. They were anointed because now they had to be or do something. They were launched into a new destiny. So the first thing about anointing is it's dedication or consecration. Second thing is you're actually appointed to a task. An anointed person has a job to do now. Third thing about anointed, which I have alluded to, almost Throughout the entire Old Testament, the primary people anointed were priests and kings, which were the big leaders in the country. David was anointed. Aaron was anointed. Every high priest was supposed to be anointed, and every king was supposed to be anointed. So when you're reading through the Bible, God would send a prophet like Samuel and say, go to Saul, anoint his head with oil, proclaim him king. So they go take out the oil. There was one, one prophet who anointed some. I think it was Jehu. I don't remember anointed his head and then ran to get out of the middle of the political chaos that was about to happen from the choice of the new leader. So, an anointed person is consecrated. An anointed person is specifically chosen for a task. Usually, it's the priests and kings who are anointed. 
So when we call Jesus the anointed one, in a sense, he's one of many. There are many anointed people in the Bible. But he's not an anointed one. He's the anointed one. Just like there are lots of kings in the Bible, but he's the king of kings. There are lots of lords in the Bible, but he's the lord of lords. And there are lots of consecrated people in the Bible. But he's the Messiah, the consecrated one. Fifth thing you should know about anointing in the Bible. And this is unique because I told you priests were anointed and kings were anointed. Priests were from Aaron's lineage, from the tribe of Levi. Kings were from the tribe of Judah. So you were either a priest or a king. You could not be both. But there was one, Jesus. He was both a priest and a king. Well, how did he do that, Steve? Was he from both tribes? No, he was from the tribe of Judah. So then how was he a priest? Because priests are supposed to be from the tribe of Levi. Yeah, they are. But there was one notable exception. Way back in Genesis, there was another divine priesthood introduced, the priesthood of Melchizedek. Jesus is a Melchizedek priest, not a Levitical priest. So he's a priest and a king, not a Levitical priest, but a Melchizedek priest. By the way, Levitical priest, Melchizedek priest. Levitical priest, Melchizedek. Much greater priest, a priest and a king. And this I found very interesting. Sixth thing I want you to know about anointing is it ties to healing. This is the place where it's not got nothing to do with authority. It's got nothing to do with priests. It's got nothing to do with kings. It's got nothing to do with prophecy or leadership. All it's got to do is with health and well-being. Ezekiel 16.9 says this, I bathed you with water and washed the blood from you and put ointments on you. Anointing. It was a medical treatment of the day. Um, guy gets beat up by robbers. A good Samaritan comes by, takes care of him, pours on oil. Oil was a healing. It was the antiseptic. It was their um, triple antibiotic ointment of the day. It was their hydrogen peroxide. It was what they used to minister to people who are hurt. So let me wrap up these six. I told you I had seven. Let me give you the six. I'll give you the seventh in a moment. Um, also want to wrap up the Jesus and the Lord thing. Jesus means God saves. Remember Joshua, Yeshua, God saves, Jehovah saves. He was specifically chosen by God to save us. He was consecrated. He was anointed. He is our Lord and he is our king. He's our mediator, our priest, and the one who heals our souls. Here's number seven. After the Messiah, who is both priest and king, anointed for both, after he comes to our souls, he passes his anointing onto us. Maybe I should say, as he heals our soul, he passes his anointing onto us. So we become anointed, which is pretty cool. 2 Corinthians 1, 21 through 22. Now it's God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. So when the Holy Spirit comes into us, that's the anointing passing from him to us as a guarantee and as a deposit of what is to come. He set his seal of ownership on us. 
you can listen to me now, talk to Jose later. Jose used to work to, for the gas company. Sometimes they would go to a meter and they would need to put something on that meter that said, hey, you can't turn on this meter because the gas company has turned it off. And it was maybe a little metal seal or plastic seal stamped with their thing on it. Well, metal's like this big. A pair of snips would take it right off. But that's not the point. The point is, this is legally sealed, and if you touch it, I'm going to know about it, and you're going to get shafted. And there's going to be severe penalties for you messing with this. That's a seal. That's how seals were used in the days of Jesus, too. A letter was sealed. And the seal, if that was like the king's seal or the governor's seal on there, and you stumbled across that someday, you were like, whoa, that's the governor's seal. Does it look cracked? Because if it's cracked, I'm not going near it. I'm running because they'll think I cracked it. No, it looks like it's got a, it's good, okay. Look what I found. They were very respectful of official seals. You mess with a Roman seal, you lose your head. Okay? Now the seal's easy to break. It's just a little bit of wax. But it talks about serious consequence, and it talks about the authority of the one who sealed the document. By the way, lesson for another day, but there's a seal mentioned in the book of Revelation, a scroll with seven seals. That's some document. It says, now it's God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. You know, if you like to highlight your Bible, you might want to Underline, highlight, or circle that word guaranteeing. <sighs> Talk about guarantees. Here we go. I'm going to have to get on my soapbox. Our DVD player broke. So my wife was, great, now we can get a Blu-ray player. All right. So I'll go to the store and buy a Blu-ray player. Michael said, found me a really good one on sale. And it was a name brand. It was cheap as I was going to get. So I went to Best Buy, put it on the, the table. Would you like to buy the extended warranty for that? For only, well, $14.95, if anything happens to it within the next two years, Martians attack anything, we'll replace it. It's their guarantee. And I'm like, I get mad at these things. I'm buying a brand new DVD player for your advertised price. Now I gotta give you an extra $20 to make sure it's gonna work? Is that really what you're telling me? And what's the guarantee? For 20 years, I'll pay. No, it's for two years. Man, of course it's going to work for two years. It's brand stinking new. It better work for two years. I'm going to have a problem with it in five years, seven years, ten years. Not two years. It's a ripoff. I get so annoyed with that sort of thing. What kind of guarantee is that? It's a guarantee that they make more money. That's what kind of guarantee it is. Hate that stuff. Then I remember talking about a bigger purchase with somebody one day. It was at Costco. It was a big TV purchase. He said, and we'd like to offer you the extended warranty, but it's not like other companies' warranties where, you know, they got all this fine print, and if you don't do this and you don't do that, that's not us. You buy this warranty, it is covered, period. We'll come by with a cup of tea, pick it up from your house, bring it back to you, and kiss you on the cheek. It's covered. It's a real guarantee. I said, now that's a guarantee. That one I'll pay for. We like guarantees, but we've even bought guarantees. With, there's so much fine print, it's a lie. It just comes down to a rip-off lie. Put all those aside. 
this is God's guarantee. Set his seal of ownership on us. Put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Signed, sealed. Now we're just waiting to be delivered. So the word Jesus means Savior. The word Lord means we must make him our master to be saved. The word Christ means he himself seals the deal. He passes his anointing on to us, promises to keep us, our souls safe, and to bring us to heaven. It's then on him. He promises. He guarantees. Listen to what he said. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. This is not a sealed document on the street that somebody might stumble across. This is a sealed document, which is the uh, warranty to our souls, the title to our soul, that he keeps in his hand. He doesn't even put it in a safety deposit box. He keeps it in his hand. Your guarantee. Imagine... Jesus said, okay, I'm going to hold on to this water bottle. Who thinks they can take it out of my hand? I promise not to let it go. You know, yeah, right. Okay, not even going to try. The devil and all his demons attacked at once. He'd blink at them and they'd turn into ash. They didn't even get close. If the universe blew up, he could stop it with the cap. I mean, there's, if it's in his hand, you're, you're good to go. There's nothing possibly powerful enough to break that seal and to get it out of his hand. My sheep follow me. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Now, Jesus wanted to, his sheep to know that they're safe. They're secure in him. When they get the seal, the Holy Spirit's anointing, they're, they're good to go. But he doesn't say it just once. Listen to what he says. I give them eternal life. Okay, when does eternal life end? Yeah, never. By definition, if it ended, it wouldn't be eternal life. If you could lose it, it wouldn't be eternal life. It would be maybe life that could last forever if you don't lose it. But if he gives you eternal life, it ends when? I heard three people. It ends when? Never. Right. It's eternal. It, it ends never. If he gives you eternal life, it never ends. Otherwise, it's not called eternal life. It's called something else. I give them eternal life. Thank you, Jesus. I understand. It never ends. I'm going to live with you in heaven forever, and you're sealing the deal. Thank you. But I'm not finished, Steve. He says, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Didn't you just say that? Yes, I'm saying it again. For emphasis? For emphasis. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Remember I told you about Hebrew parallelism? You see it in the New Testament too. He just repeated himself. Said the same thing in a different way. I give them eternal life. Eternal life. You hearing me? Shall never perish. You with me? I'm with you. But he says it again. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. That's the third time, Lord. You must be really serious about what you're saying. And even more serious about what you're doing. But he doesn't end there. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. And I and my Father are one. 
At the beginning of the lesson, I told you basically the gospel is summed up in half a verse. Paul said, we went around testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. You know those three words, Lord Jesus Christ. If they're your words, you're going to be ushered into heaven, he promises. But there's two other words in that verse, like those three, that we don't use in this culture or don't use right. So I want to make sure you know them. And the first one is repentance. Outside of these walls, outside of religious circles, who uses it? You don't like go to the office and say, yeah, uh, I called in sick, but I was lying, so I repented and came in. Nobody does that. Nobody says that. Oh, uh, yeah, I'm going to lay off half the work first, but I repented, and you can keep your jobs. We don't use the word. It's a good word. We should. We don't. And so it's a religious word. So you tell somebody, hey, man, you've got to repent. They're like, what? They, they don't know what that word means. So what does repentance mean? Uh, well, let me show you. Perfect Jewish example of repentance. Now you know what it means. You're pursuing, doing bad, doing your own thing, doing it wrong, doing it right. Repentance means you're bad. I'm going to stop doing it. There's a lot of people that think repentance means this. Or, or, no, no, no. That's not repentance. This is repentance. Heck, it's not even this. It's a simple decision. Bad, good. Bad, good. Me, God. Sin, heaven. Pick one. There's no gray. There's no fence-sitting with repentance. It's the moment of decision. The fence-sitting is, I don't know if I'm going to repent yet or not. Fine. Sit around and think about it. Hope you don't die during the process. That's the fence-sitting. The moment you repent, boom, decision made. That's what biblical repentance is. It's a total change of direction and attitude. It actually means in Hebrew to turn around and go the other way. So, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance towards God. Let's say God's over there. Tapping you on your shoulder, tapping you on your shoulder. Going like this and going like that. Yeah? Little gospel sign over here. Oh, that's kind of interesting. Huh. Heaven? Sin. Eternal life? Hell. Fun. My own will, no master. Your master? I'm reaching for you. I love that song, by the way. Testifying to Jews and to Greeks, repentance towards God, and faith. Faith is another word. We use it in this culture. We just use it wrong. So you're going fishing next Thursday? Yeah, you know, they're forecasting horrible rain. Yeah, but I have faith it's not going to rain. Faith in what? in a hopeful outcome based on nothing. That's how we use faith. Faith today is a hopeful outcome based on nothing. It means you want something good to happen. 
That's not what biblical faith is, that you want something good to happen. Biblical faith is confidence and trust in something based on a reason. Why do I have faith in God? Let's throw out that word. Why do I trust God? Because he's trustworthy. He created the heavens and the earth. He keeps his word. He's all-powerful. And if anybody can save me, he can save me. And he proved it by sending his son to die for my sins, raising from the dead. And if that's all true, and I believe it is, he's got my trust. He's the only one that can take me to heaven. I'm trusting him. I'm not just hoping I'll go to heaven. I'm believing in Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of generations of prophecies, the man who walked on water, turned water into wine, raised Lazarus from the dead, and said, for my next trick, I'll do it to myself. I trust him. That's why I believe I'm going to heaven, because I trust him based on everything he's done. Faith is not just the hope and a positive outcome of something. Better for us today to throw out the word faith if we misunderstand it and replace it with the word confident trust in a deserving person or thing. Now, I think we understand the gospel. Now, I think we understand what Paul was saying when he said, we went about testifying to Jews and to Greeks repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. Three words will get you into heaven. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Please join me in prayer. Lord God, thank you so much for showing us the truth and giving us the three words that we need. Thank you for sending Jesus. Jesus, thank you so much for coming as Joshua, as Yeshua, as the one who saves. Thank you for becoming a human being to die for our sins and conquering sin and death by rising from the dead. And thank you for holding the deed to my soul sealed, waiting for delivery. And Lord, I'm so looking forward to that. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth and in my heart as it is in heaven. Guide us, keep us, lead us. And if there are any here who have not made you their Lord, Lord, convict their hearts, call them to you. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.